There's nothing left of the liberal end of the political spectrum in Russia, but there's a lot left of this hardline right wing. And one of them has an army. What's to stop him from using that army to oust Putin? Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, December 14th. Today, Julia Yaffe is here with the improbable and terrifying story of the man known as Putin's chef, Yevgeny Prigozhin. He runs the Wagner Group, a shadow army of far-right mercenaries close to the Kremlin. And there's some chatter that he might be the guy to step in if Vladimir Putin is ever forced out of power. And later, Tina Wynn is here to discuss the mind-boggling rise of Marjorie Taylor Greene, the ultra-extremist GOP congresswoman who's cozying up to Kevin McCarthy, and if she is the future of the Republican Party. We hear about all that and more in today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe, who has a fascinating piece up this week about one Russian in particular, who may or may not be the guy who does the coup against Vladimir Putin. We shall see. Julia, how are you? I'm good. This is a very interesting subject. At some point last year, I came across the Wagner Group, which is a shadowy private military company run out of Russia. They do all sorts of nefarious operations around the world. You have a piece up on Puck that just went up Tuesday that is a profile of the leader of the Wagner group, Yevgeny Prigozhin. He is a scary guy. What can you tell us about him? He is indeed a pretty scary guy. He is like Vladimir Putin from Leningrad. He, like Vladimir Putin, was really into sports growing up. But unlike Vladimir Putin, he kind of went a different route and he got tangled up with the law. And he spent pretty much the entire decade of the 80s in jail for robbery, theft, burglary. At one point, he's reported to have uh, choked a woman to unconsciousness to steal her earrings and coat. And then he was released in 1990, and he got into the then shadowy world of restaurants and catering in newly democratic St. Petersburg. This was a business that like in other places in the world, worked hand in glove with the mob or with organized crime. And he is said to have met Vladimir Putin through there. But the real origin story of how he met Vladimir Putin is he had this restaurant on a boat in St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg has these canals and a big river that runs through it. Uh, He had a restaurant on a boat called New Island Vladimir Putin took George W. Bush to dine there when he came to visit Moscow during his first term, and he brought Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell with him. And apparently, Putin quite liked it. Anyway, fast forward, Evgeny Prigozhin gets a lot of state catering deals to basically service the military, the army, state schools, etc. And he gets these fat contracts, and he starts siphoning off a lot of that money to fund the Internet Research Agency, which Americans know as the Troll Farm, which meddled in America's 2016 presidential election, for which Prigozhin was then indicted in 2018 by Robert Mueller. Why would a guy who, I think I read in some economist profile, 
like one of his restaurants was like a hot dog business. <laughs> uh, why would a guy in restaurants start to create the internet research agency? Probably because he was asked. Look, the thing that the Kremlin's always looking for is plausible deniability. Or it used to before February 24th, right? It was always plausible deniability. We're not meddling in your elections. We're not invading Ukraine. We're not in the Central African Republic. It's some private company that's doing this. Meanwhile, this company is being funded by money that's taken out the back door of a state company that's being funded by the state. A state contract that goes to the army or a government school to literally school lunches. And the school lunches at one point got so bad in St. Petersburg because so much money was being siphoned off to fund Wagner and Prigozhin's other projects on behalf of the Kremlin that the kids literally got dysentery. So you write that the Wagner group first showed up in Eastern Ukraine in 2014, then Syria in 2015. How did he consolidate his power over the group? Oh, he built it. I mean, he he built it, right? He built it by siphoning off this money from the state contracts to schools, to army, to the army, to the police, to state hospitals. You know, he was doing this on behalf of the Kremlin. The Kremlin needed this because when it was fighting in, in Eastern Ukraine, starting in 2014, remember, they were denying that there were any Russian troops there. They kept calling it a civil war and that these were local separatists and that any Russians who showed up there were people who were volunteers on vacation. But in fact, they were either active duty Russian military personnel who were on fake vacation or they were members of Wagner. People in Wagner had been people with prior military service. And fast forward to February 2022, Wagner had by then fought in Syria and Libya. They had had all this combat experience that a lot of Russian soldiers didn't have. By the time Russia decided to invade Ukraine, the Wagner guys were some of the most experienced fighters on the battlefield. Can you talk about some of their tactics? I mean, one thing you write about, and I assume this is why they're so feared, they punish deserters by taping their heads to a cinder block and smashing it with a sledgehammer. Yeah. Recently, a video circulated of an execution. This was a man who was in Wagner. He had deserted and defected to the Ukrainian side. The Ukrainians turned him back over to the Russians who were like, oh, this is one of Wagner guys. And they sent him back to Wagner and the Wagner guys are like, welcome back. And what they did was they took basically, you know, packing tape, taped his head to a cinder block and on camera did his head in with a sledgehammer and made sure that video got out to discourage other people from deserting. But they do this on a regular basis. These kind of, according to human rights watchers and defenders, if they catch and bring back deserters, they will execute them in mass, either by firing squad or by with a sledgehammer, which they've become known for, to discourage deserters. And here's the thing. After 10 months or nearly 10 months of this grueling war, in which Wagner has taken a lot of casualties, just like the Russian military, they're no longer the most experienced guys in the fight. And a lot of their really experienced guys have been killed. And they need more and more people, just like the Russian army. Here's how you really know that Prigozhin has great 
power and access in the Kremlin is he has been openly recruiting, personally recruiting in Russian prisons. He shows up and I don't think it's an accident that these videos are out there, but you see him in the prison yard. Not only is he allowed in, but the prison authorities gather all the prisoners around to hear him and he makes his pitch and he says, look, you have, I don't know, however many years left of your sentence. You're rotting away in here. If you come with me, if you sign up, you have like five minutes to decide. If you sign a six-month contract with me, if you make it back from Ukraine alive after six months, you're free to go. You're a free man. You may not come back alive. A lot of you won't, but at least you have a chance to be free after six months. And as a result of this recruitment strategy, the prison population in Russia has dropped significantly by thousands and thousands of people. And this is well-documented in the Russian press. Wagner, at this point, is just sending in the prisoners with barely any weaponry or equipment. They just send them in first as a kind of reconnaissance method. They send in a wave. That way they find out, you know, where the machine gun nests are and where the weak spots in the enemy line. Then, like, the more experienced guys come in. This is coming back to the deserters. That's why you're seeing people trying to flee, trying to defect. Because... When they signed up from the prison yard, I don't think they realized that they were going to be just sent in as little cannon fodder. I mean, this is essentially a paramilitary force. This is a shadow army for the Kremlin. But it sounds like they might not necessarily be more tactically sophisticated or more skilled than the Russian army. It just seems like these are extra bodies that can kind of be off the books. Is that right? That's right. At this point, that's what they are. Before, they used to be a way for the Kremlin to have a presence somewhere and allow the Kremlin to deny that there are Russian boots on the ground or for Russia to deny a body count, right? At this point, it's all hands on deck. The war is not going how the Kremlin thought it would go, and they're racking up the body count along with the Russian army, and they're just as ineffective as the Russian military. I mean, you write that this guy, again, used to be in restaurants, is known as Putin's chef. He is written about as a quote-unquote close associate of Vladimir Putin. And as you just said, he operates a puppet army for Vlad. Why is there chatter that if Putin were weak internally, that Prigozhin would be the guy who might lead a coup if that happens? I mean, are they not close anymore? So the reason people have started speculating about this is Putin's whole regime is built to not have any coups, to not have any competition, to not have any alternatives to Putin, right? You can't even come outside with a blank piece of paper and hold it up as if it were a poster. You will get arrested. And then you have a guy with a whole army that is being supplied by the defense ministry, but that is, you know, by all accounts, kind. I mean, can kind of do what they want. He has become much more powerful after the invasion. They're not more effective than the Russian army, but they're not less effective. And they're doing a lot of the fighting and dying for the Russian state. And so he is now rumored to be pushing Putin to give him a formal political position in the Kremlin. A big one. The chatter is that the Kremlin might give him something that is too small for him, that he might want something very big like defense minister, which is insane. 
And also, you know, he's a guy with an army and there are reports that he's starting to build out a political movement, a brown political movement, i.e., you know, a kind of nationalist far right movement. There's nothing left of the liberal end of the political spectrum in Russia, but there's a lot left of this hardline right wing that has been very much energized by the war. They're the only ones allowed to criticize the Kremlin. And one of them has an army that's quite loyal to him. And what's to stop him from using that army to oust Putin? There are a lot of things, actually, to stop him, but it is interesting that he exists, that he has this army. It is raising a lot of eyebrows, both in Russia and in the West. And people are wondering if, you know, if this is where the coup comes from. There continues to be internet chatter about Putin's health. Do you have any sense if Putin is unhealthy or not? Obviously, like, that's not the Kremlin doesn't leak those things, but it feels like that's being talked about still. I mean, he seems fine, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I think the health stuff, the coup stuff is still in the realm of wishful thinking. I think eventually both things will become more realistic and more germane. But right now, I feel like we're still not quite there yet. Thank you so much, Julia. You're so welcome. When we come back, Ben Landy asks Tina Wynn about Marjorie Taylor Greene's rise to the top of the Republican Party. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy with Tina Wynn to talk about the apocalyptic future of the Republican Party, Marjorie Taylor Greene. (laughs) Uh, MTG. You know that she's a big deal when people start making acronyms out of her name. I'm only half kidding about the the apocalyptic future of the Republican Party, but just barely. Um, For anyone who doesn't know Green or MTG, she was essentially a QAnon member when she was elected to Congress in in 2020. She's pushed conspiracy theories about 9-11, COVID, Sandy Hook, the Rothschilds. She she was sort of famous for um, making some comment about Jewish space lasers uh, being to blame for wildfires in California. She was stripped of her committee assignments initially when she came into the House. But Tina, as you've been reporting, Green has actually backed away from that a little bit. She's been trying to ingratiate herself with the GOP leadership over the last year, particularly with Kevin McCarthy, who looks like he's likely going to become Speaker of the House. How has that been playing out for her? And sort of what have those tactics looked like? So what you have to understand with Republican culture war topics is that Marjorie Taylor Greene comes in hitting two really, really, really important check boxes. One, the reason she was not on the committee was not because of actions taken on her own side. It was the Democrats looking at her and saying, we don't want you on committees, you're out, which is so potent when you talk to not just the Republican base, but just general Republican voters who believe that cancel culture is destroying America. Two, She is one of the top fundraisers in the GOP. Like, I think in the last election cycle, she was the fourth highest grossing one. And she was doing it off of small dollar donations. And she was being a great team player. She wasn't hoarding it all for herself like Trump did. She was actually dispersing it to people she was campaigning for. And being someone who can have these crazy ideas, but also is trying to focus on a Republican victory is hugely important for ingratiating yourself. Like one of the reasons I'd say that the GOP is really 
salty about Trump is because he was sitting on this giant campaign gold mine of maybe a hundred million dollars and not giving it to anyone, not helping anyone out. So already MTG's got that going for her. Two, she's really good at getting public attention for pet causes, but in a way that is both absolute catnip to the base while mildly acceptable slash not totally unacceptable to Republican voters. That's sort of where she's coming into this next Congress. And that's why Kevin McCarthy is so close with her. And that's why she's close with McCarthy. It is interesting that McCarthy has made so many concessions to her, especially as he's contending with his own surprisingly difficult vote to become speaker. He has only this tiny margin of error in terms of the votes that he can lose and still become uh, the next Speaker of the House. Two years ago, Marjorie Taylor Greene's positions were, if not beyond the pale, uh, not something that Republicans in Congress were endorsing. They were looking the other way. Now it looks like she is the likely key vote for the future Speaker of the House. That is just a massive, massive change in how she has positioned herself in Washington in a very short amount of time. Yeah, definitely. One of the people I spoke to in um, House leadership pointed out that she has been really good at adapting to the political game in Washington, especially by distinguishing herself from the rest of the Freedom Caucus in her ability to play ball and to negotiate with people and to not make enemies with people by being obstructionist, which I would say in the past 10 years since the Tea Party came to power, the entire point of being a member of the Freedom Caucus and the Tea Party was we're going to be obstructionist a-holes and hold up any sort of progression in legislation on Capitol Hill because, you know, principles. And Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't necessarily do that. The moment she got on Capitol Hill, everyone was sort of struck by how nice she was as a human. You'd imagine someone who literally said, I believe that Q, whoever he is, is a real patriot, was going on Capitol Hill and be like, hey, it's nice to meet you. I'm Marjorie Taylor Greene. I can't wait to work together. Normally, someone who is that into conspiracies, normally they would, you know, draw a line in the sand and go, this is my moral stance. I will never cross it, especially for all you establishment types in Washington. And the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene can do that while still maintaining a connection with the base is pretty potent. Now, I will say that there is a segment of screaming MAGA that doesn't like Marjorie Taylor Greene now. They do happen to be the white supremacy wing of the party, the Nick Fuentes's, the Laura Loomers, the real diehard people. So right now she has to maintain this very delicate balancing act where she, one, can play the game in Washington, but two, doesn't tilt over to the point that the people, I would say, closer to the mainstream within Screaming MAGA world, like um, the Steve Bannons or the Alex Joneses, start uh, abandoning ship. She was a guest at the New York Young Republican Club dinner last Saturday, and she told guests there that if she had been in charge of the January 6th insurrection, we would have won. And then she added, not to mention we would have been armed. There were white nationalists at that event, along with Steve Bannon, Don Jr., Rudy Giuliani. I mean, this was like MAGA A-list, but congregated on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. I mean, there, there is really this sense that the side of the party that MTG represents is fusing with the mainstream in ways that are very alarming. Yeah, I'll point out that that specific group is a bit more 
online internet troll than the rest of the Republican Party in New York. And I think those guys tend to be more extremist in their rhetoric and obsessed with posting memes than, you know, people who try to win elections. At the same time, the more that you see this rhetoric into the Republican Party and the louder it becomes and the more it drowns out the voices that are concerned with, you know, making inroads into specific coalitions and trying to peel off voters who are independents, the ones who swung for the Democrats in this past election and lost, the more they won't be able to say anything else. So that's also a big concern that people outside of the internet MAGA bubble have. And I don't know whether people inside the internet MAGA bubble understand that, except for maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene. We'll see how she decides to fuse the two together. Who knows how she'll do it. But back in Washington, when you look at the relationship between MTG and McCarthy, for instance, do you see the party and McCarthy becoming more like her or her becoming more like them? Where does that point of intersection leave us? I think she'll be able to play both sides. She'll keep the base happy, but she'll be a person in Washington who can maneuver. I don't know how much she actually believes that insurrectionist rhetoric. I think she's very fluent in it. I don't know whether she'll take that and try to bring it into legislation that doesn't have to do with soft culture war things. But if she can get the Republican Party to pivot into banning transgender care or doing some sort of federal national legislation on critical race theory, that could be a big issue. And that would be an issue that would, one, win her love from the base and two, keep her elected. Like her constituents in Georgia love her. There is literally no way anyone could primary her or a Democrat could come in and oust her. Like that seat's super rural. It's in the reddest red part of Georgia. You're not going to see any indication that it'll flip. So she has no incentive to moderate her rhetoric, but does she have an incentive to vote softer in Washington? And does she have an incentive to try and drag moderates onto her side? Yeah, well, it's such an important and fascinating story, Tina. Obviously, um, like we said, Marjorie Taylor Greene was a total kook and a fringe character in this story um, a year or two ago. And now she looks like, um, if not the center of the party, absolutely a pivotal player in the evolution of the GOP and what's going to happen in this new Congress. So thanks for stopping by and and, and chatting about it. And um, we'll have you back on next week. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.